This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. A whole lot less lip service and a whole lot more action is required. I don't feel safe. It's the first time I've, you know, I carry a knife now. Revolving door criminal justice has failed the citizens of Nanaimo. It's failing the citizens of British Columbia. We want uh, prolific offenders placed in jail. We want the victims to be looked at and looked after and feel safe to walk this very street in front of the courthouse. Somebody should be able to say, okay, enough procrastination. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. Those are the voices of B.C. citizens concerned about the surge in urban violent crime. We've seen some terrible violence on our streets, in many cases committed by repeat offenders. Why is our justice system continuing to release dangerous offenders back out on the streets, back into the public? That's where we start this morning with my guest, Nikki Sharma, British Columbia's Attorney General. Minister, thank you for coming on this morning. Thanks for having me. You bet. I appreciate it a lot. First of all, let's talk about your concerns here. I know you've written a letter to your federal counterpart. Can you briefly outline what your concerns are and what you are trying to do about it? Thanks. So just like the the clip that you played there, public safety and, and the government hears that it's very important and we need to take action in all fronts. And what we've been doing is monitoring um, how the bail policy is going and calling upon the federal government to make changes to the criminal code. And what we're seeing, BC Prosecution Service released some preliminary data saying that Crown Council, and this is our team of of lawyers in BC are asking for detention for public safety and, and to, main, to maintain confidence in the justice system. And in less than half the time, um, our judges are agreeing with that and detaining those, those criminals. So clearly the criminal code needs to be amended and we've been calling upon the federal government to do that for months now. Okay, so we're talking about cases where the prosecution, the BC Crown prosecutor in these cases, has determined that a person represents a danger to public safety, and they've asked the judge to keep that person locked up, right? And and how many? And did you say more and more than half the time, the judge is overruling that and letting people out anyway? Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So um, wow. this is what we've been we've been saying all along to the federal uh, government, and unfortunately, this is an issue across Canada. Um, Cities across Canada are saying to the federal government, you need to update your bail policy and hold and change some of those provisions in the criminal code that that seek to hold people if there's a risk to public safety. In BC, we've been very clear that when there's repeat violent offenders, um, we need to make sure that they face consequences. Um, And, you know, we're not just waiting on the federal government, although criminal code changes need to happen. We're investing in, in teams and resources on the ground and using every tool that we can in BC to address this issue. 
Okay, this is a very troubling development here, in my opinion. Can you tell me, in, in this letter you've written to the federal minister, how many cases are we talking about here? Like, how many dangerous offenders have been released onto the streets of B.C. by judges over, over the uh, wishes well, of the Crown? Yeah, well, you know, B.C. Prosecution Service has been collecting and holding the data, and the data will come out, I, I'm told, by them sometime this week. So we'll be able to dig in a little bit more. I was informed about the data last week so i'm happy to come on and talk about it with you once that's public okay how did you feel what went through your mind when you heard about this um well you know what we're taking unprecedented action in bc so the type of data that the bc prosecution service is collecting is really new and it shows how seriously we take this issue um we're we're investing in the resources that we need but clearly there needs to be amendments to the criminal code and that's what i'm going to keep advocating for from the federal government have any of these these dangerous offenders, so we're talking about cases where the, the Crown believes that there's a risk to public safety here. Keep these people locked up. Do not let them back out on the street. The judge in more than half the cases is letting them out anyway, as you just described. Have any of these cases resulted in, in more violence, more crimes, after they've been released into the public? Like the, the repeat cycle happening over and over again. Is that happening? Um, well, I can't, I don't know specifics of each case, Mike, but what I can tell you is one of the things that we're investing in and we'll be starting up in May 1st is re- a repeat violent offender um, intervention initiative. So this is something with 12 hubs across the province. So you're really, that team will really be able to understand and circle around those violent offenders and communities and, and work together to make sure there are consequences and, inter- and, and interventions when needed. So that's kind of the on-the-ground team that we're developing. And, and adding to that, we really think that changes to the criminal code, plus we're making um, historic investments in RCMP across the province. So all these working together, um, uh, we believe, will help address public safety. And we know that it's an important to everybody in, in B.C. that you know, they can feel safe in their communities. Speaking to Nikki Sharma, British Columbia's Attorney General, we're talking about violent repeat offenders. Uh, I think a lot of people would be shocked to know that this is happening with the frequency that it does, that in more than half the cases, the judges are overruling the Crown, despite the Crown outlining this risk to public safety, letting people out anyway. You mentioned that you believe that the criminal code is possibly to blame. Like If we take a look at Bill C-75, federal changes to the criminal code that brought in this principle of restraint, urging that earliest release at the earliest opportunity is favored over incarceration right in the bill. Is that the problem? We think that there were clearly like unintended consequences to those changes to the criminal code. And that's why since the first week of becoming attorney general, I've been reaching out to Minister Lamenti at the federal government. And, you know, all ministers, of justice across the province met with him and said this is causing problems in community and we received yeah. a commitment from him that it would be changed in the spring but yeah there's these there, there I, we believe it's unintended consequences of the changes that you're talking about and really the message from bc um to to the federal government is that repeat violent offenders need to face consequences because um, public safety is a serious thing in our province, and I was joined by people across the country to say this to the federal government, and we'll be watching to make sure that those changes happen. Yeah, British Columbia is not alone here in these concerns. Other provinces have raised similar concerns. Municipalities, big city mayors in British Columbia have been asking for action on this. What is the holdup? Like, you mentioned that 
the federal minister here, the federal justice minister, David Lametti, had earlier said, oh, we're going to fix, we're going to do something about this. Why is it taking so long? It seems like, it, it seems like this should be an urgent file. And th- nothing seems to be happening. Why is that, according to you, your yeah, understanding of it? Yeah, thanks. So the commitment that we got um, a few weeks ago was that they would introduce changes. So as early as this yeah. spring session in Ottawa. And part of the reason that we're I'm writing the letter and that we're keeping meeting the premier met with all premiers last Friday to send the same message is to keep the pressure on to make sure they hear that this is a priority. And I'm hopeful that those changes will come um, in this spring session in Ottawa. Okay, like, did he say specifically that there would be amendments that they would take this out of the bill? Like, what was his specific commitment to you to fix yeah, this? Yeah, so what, what, what we asked for um, was really, really, like, broad provisions that said, look, if there was violence, if somebody's committed violence, and the very broadest definition of that term, um, whether it's with bladed weapons or guns or uh, bear spray in Manitoba is an issue, but any type of violence that... There should be changes to the criminal code that say that that person is held unless there's a really good reason to release them. So it kind of shifts the the release um, release at all, you know, release and then only hold if it's necessary to the other way that hold them unless there's a good reason to release them. And we've asked for the very broadest changes. Um, and, you know, the federal government committed to making changes and we're hopeful to, that they will include that definition. Minister, last question for you. What is your message to British Columbians on this? We just heard a lot of voices of concerned citizens at the start of our conversation here for people who are concerned about what they're seeing on the street, these violent repeat offenders being released over and over and over again into the public, back onto the streets. People are concerned. People are worried. What What is your message to them? What would you say? Yeah. What do you say to people who are worried and concerned about this? Yeah, so my message to them is your government hears you and we're taking very specific actions. We're using every tool in our toolkit here in the province to hire more police officers, have a repeat offender initiative where we're circling around these violent um, offenders and making sure that they we can do what we can to make sure they face consequences. And we're calling on the federal government to make changes that we think are necessary to the criminal code. So we're taking all steps that are necessary, including men- investing in mental health and addiction supports, all the things that we know are needed um, and experts tell us are needed. So I just want them to know that we'll do everything we can to make sure communities feel safe. Minister, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, let's talk about drug use and overdoses especially in the construction sector. These are some disturbing numbers that have just come out about the number of overdoses that are happening in this particular sector of our our economy. I'm going to speak to Mike Matuk here in a moment from the Carpenters Regional Council about what they're doing about this situation here. Have a listen to this report here. Now, you'll hear reporter, global reporter Richard Zussman here. You'll also hear a representative from the Carpenters Union, Matt Carlo. Let's listen. Illicit drug deaths are higher in construction than any other industry. Of those employed when they died, a staggering 55% worked in construction. Toxic drug-related deaths up 33% in the sector in the past five years. Initially, we some recognition that, that this sector or this industry has been hit the way it has been hit would be nice to see. I've you know, lost friends that I've grown up with, gone to school with, and, and you know, entered the working world with. 
Right, that's Matt Carlo there, Carpenters Union. Let's discuss this situation now with my guest, Mike Matuk. Mike is a representative of the Carpenters Regional Council. Very pleased to welcome him. Mike, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Hey, Mike, when I hear that number there, that when you take a look at the overdose deaths, illicit drug deaths in B.C., 55% working in the construction sector? My goodness. Mike, what is going on? That's a shocking number. It's quite an overwhelming statistic that comes through, you know, the reports that 55% of those that have died have been related to the trades industry is, yeah. is a staggering number. It's, yeah. it's, it's incredible. Yeah, no, it really is. That is a, sh- a shockingly high number. And then when we heard your colleague there in that clip, Matt Carlo, talk about how he's lost friends to drug overdose deaths. I, I suspect, Mike, you know, you know some guys who have, you've probably lost some friends too, I imagine, have you? That's correct. You know, I've, yeah. I've been in the trade industry 18 years myself. Um, I've had coworkers and, and personal friends, uh, two of them that I've lost to, you know, this epidemic and the, this type of crisis. It's, it, it hits home for me. And this is a message that I, I fully stand beside, behind and support. And uh, I'm looking to get a solution to make it better for all those in the trades. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that, Mike, that you've lost some friends to this crisis here. Let's talk about what's being done about it now. So tell me about the Carpenters Council here and the naloxone kits that you're making available. Yeah, the the program that we're offering is partnered with the Construction Industry Rehabilitation Plan. Um, They have a kit in every hand initiative that we're partnered with, and, and we're the first craft union in B.C. to do this. So the program and the initiative that we have uh, is aimed to kind of tackle this at several levels. Uh, We receive the kits from CIRP, and we have them in our office here uh, where we see our members uh, for a dispatch request, a a question about their apprenticeship, a question about uh, benefits. So we meet our members uh, right where where they are. Uh, And how we do this, we remove the barriers by offering the kits here. So we discuss with them, hey, do you know what this is? Uh, are you aware of what this, what this tool is and, and what this epi- epidemic is? And we educate them about the program, about the, st- uh, of the issues uh, and how the kit itself can be used to potentially save a life. Uh, the training itself takes two to five minutes. It's very simple, very easy. Uh, and then with a kit in their hand, uh, they understand the importance of what they have and how to use it. And lastly, with this member being educated and told what it is, they're part of a trades community. They're part of our community. And with a kit in every hand and the understanding of the root problem, we've removed the stigma around the conversation. We've addressed it. We've talked about it already. And we bring awareness to to this whole problem. Uh, Now we have the the person talking about it. They've got a kit in their hand. uh, And we're one step closer to a real solution. And now we've armed that member with the potential to save a life. Yeah. How many of these kits have been distributed so far? The kits that we have in the office usually come in in packages of 20. So we've given out one full box so far. Um, I actually just handed out a kit this morning to one of our members uh, and gave her the the education uh, of how to use it. And she was personally affected by it before. And now she knows how to how to use it and and help another. And Mike, why do you think so many construction workers are, are using these drugs? I think it's related to the trade itself. Um, you know, construction work itself is is physical work, whether you're a carpenter or you're an electrician or you're an iron worker, a, a 
uh, pile driver. You know, we sacrifice our bodies to, in this trade to, you know, build the communities that we live in. You know, we have our hospitals that are going up, our schools, the places that we live, the places that we eat. It's a physically demanding job. You know, you're moving material or or you're you're doing a task that's repetitive and heavy. And, and one of the most common things that happens is there is, you know, you're physically sore or tired or there's pain from the work that you're doing or an injury that you receive. You know, a bad back is is a common injury that happens to almost everybody in the trades. And it's yeah. one that, that takes the longest to overcome. So the problem that we're seeing is that opioids themselves are a pain reliever. That is how they are designed. That's what they do scientifically. And so, you know, some of the issues, even though a person can go through proper remediation and heal from an injury, uh, a pain relief to take away a long-lasting injury is is something that, you know, it, it's difficult to overcome. And so when people in the trades go to an unregulated or unsafe method of, of medicating themselves, uh, and they, they plant themselves into this toxic drug crisis. And unregula- unregulated drugs like this can be very life-ending. And by educating the members that this is how, how this is a problem and how we can correct it is how we're going to get a real yeah. solution. Speaking to Mike Matuk, Mike is a union rep, Carpenters Council. We're talking about the drug overdose crisis in the construction trades. That's a shocking number there. 55% of illegal drug deaths uh, among carpent, among uh, construction workers in our province. I've got construction workers in my own family, Mike. I, and two, my, both my brothers are construction workers. I know other guys who work in, in the trades. And I remember talking to a guy I know who was injured on the job, actually fell off a scaffold, injured his back, and he ended up hooked on opioids after that because he'd suffered an on-the-job injury. And I know that I've heard stories about guys who use use on-the-job too. Like, is that a problem, like drug use on the work site? Our union job sites have a zero-drug tolerance policy. Now, what we're trying to address right now is that your your uh, friend or the person that you spoke to, you know, yeah. he he had an injury. He went to the hospital. He got medicated for it. He technically completed the recovery program that he was issued, but at the end of it, he still had pain, and yeah. he tried to find a way to recoup that on his own, and it led to a much more serious issue. Yeah, what we are doing is we are educating all members. Uh, all people in the trades, if we can, that this unregulated crisis is slowly kind of peeling away at all those people in the trades. And it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be just people in the trades that we're discussing this with. It should be everybody that, and opening the conversation is what we're trying to do. We educate our members so that they understand the root problem and we bring it up with them to, to understand why this is an issue. And we're trying to address it by opening that conversation to everybody to, yeah normalize that we are seeing it everywhere and take steps as a group as, and bring awareness to it so that we can resolve this and, and have a healthy resolution to it as well. Where are the naloxone kits most likely to be used? Like, are these being distributed so construction workers can take them home and cl- in case there's an overdose at home, like when they finished work? Or are these naloxone kits also available at a job site, like if there's an OD at a job site? So the intent with how we are distributing these kits, we are distributing them to everybody. So 
the member can take it and i encourage everybody to have it in their their glove box or you know have it in their backpack if they're busing you know the idea is to have it near you to respond in case of an emergency so the overdoses that lead to most of the deaths happen when there is nobody around to notice them they are the deaths happen when they are done in secret because nobody can talk about this which is the importance of normalizing this conversation so being aware that it's happening, being aware that this is how it happens and the naloxone kit can be used and how to use it can potentially save lives. And I'm not looking to normalize or make it okay for opioids to be used, you know, in, in the sense that they're being used now, but I want to make sure that everybody that is educated about it knows how to stop it and how to save it. Let me play a clip here for you to get your thoughts. So this is uh, Eleanor Sturco. BC United MLA calling for increased help for construction workers who who need it when it comes to drug addiction. Here's what she had to say, and I'll get your thoughts. Let's listen. When you work in the trades, there's heavy equipment. There's people that are working with their bodies who may have pain-related issues. They do need to make it a priority to make sure that individuals who are suffering have help when they need it. Okay, if a guy, let's say a construction worker, Mike, is is using drugs and, and needs help, maybe there's an addiction issue there, is help available? Can they get help? Absolutely. Our organization, part of how we partner with the construction industry rehab plan is our members and our contractors pay into a program for to keep a facility open uh, for everybody affiliated with not just us, but the BC building trades. So if somebody is struggling, the idea is to reach out to us ask for help and we will provide the sort of help that if you know you're struggling that we can get you the help so that you can live a, a normal life again or give you the tools to survive and and assist it I, I i absolutely agree with that clip that more resources need to be dedicated to the construction industry to prevent more of these deaths and yeah. more of these problems from rising mike thank you for coming on today i appreciate it thanks for having me this oh, is you- i appreciate it Talking about the surge in overdose deaths among construction workers in B.C., about 55% of fatal overdoses among construction workers. Wow, that is a big number. And it's a sad situation that when you got a construction worker getting ready for work in the morning, you're packing up your tools, your lunchbox, and and more frequently now a naloxone kit to deal with the potential overdose. But that's the situation that we face right now. You heard from the carpenters there distributing these naloxone kits to carpenters in B.C. Let's check in with Chris Gardner now, President, Independent Contractors and Businesses Association of B.C. Chris, thank you for coming on again today. Thank you, Mike. Great to be on your show this morning. Thanks a lot. It's this is a boy. This is a tough one we're we're facing here right now with the number of overdose deaths we're seeing in the trades. What what are you seeing out there? What are you hearing? Well, you know the BC Construction Safety Alliance uh, came up with a report earlier this year, and they basically said there are three categories of um, of challenges, and that's alcohol, cannabis abuse, and and opioids. And so, um, really, what this you know, and there's there's a little bit of a debate in the industry about what's number one or two or three. But really, what rather than getting into that, the real issue is this: we've got a mental health crisis um, that is overwhelming every part of our economy, and certainly construction's right in the middle of that. And so, because by the time someone is abusing, whether it's an opioid or alcohol or cannabis, they're self-medicating. 
And so the real challenge is how do we deal with the mental health crisis that's now overwhelming uh, in this particular instance construction. And so there's a lot that, that we're doing at ICB and other stakeholders are doing. Um, and fundamentally, it, it's about starting the conversation about having, if you look at construction on work sites, despite the fact that more women are working in construction than there ever has been, it's still, if you go into a, a work site, it's 90% male, over 90% male. And so that, that there's a stigma and there's a reluctance for men to talk about issues related to their health, generally and certainly mental health. So that the culture is to, you know, get the project done, we've got deadlines, do your job, and not show weakness so you know they're not going to go into a site office and start talking about they don't feel well and so we've got to remove that stigma so that people feel more comfortable talking about these things so they we can get the resources that they need to prevent them or remove them from uh from the uh, the, the abusive behavior the addictive behavior they may be participating in are you seeing more construction workers using opioids specifically to deal with body pains, injuries, back pain? You know, I talk to construction workers that, yeah, they're all they're hurting. A lot of these guys are hurting physically from the heavy lifting and the work that they do. And are you seeing more, more construction workers turning to opioids to manage that? Well, I think what we're seeing is is there's just more people generally. So every day in British Columbia, seven people die of an opioid overdose. We've got a crisis that's reaching across every single one of our communities. We can see it on the streets. We can see it in our families. We can see it everywhere. And it's across North America. Um, so, yeah, we're seeing more of that in construction, but we're seeing it everywhere. So yeah. what we've done at ICBA is we've developed a mental health program to basically do one simple thing, help start the conversation, normalize conversations around mental health challenges, physical pain, mental pain, whatever it is the individual is dealing with so that they don't start to default to alcohol or cannabis or opioids to self-medicate. And so we've got to start those conversations. And so we have a mental health program we offer free to our members. We've got 10,000 construction professionals enrolled in that program. We rolled it out 18 months ago. And, and we think it's having an impact. But we've got a lot more work to do. One of the challenges with starting the conversation is you don't want to be in a position where someone puts up their hand and say, hey, I'm struggling. And you go, great. Now we've got to find, you know, there's a shortage of counselors, psychologists in our system. Our healthcare system is overwhelmed. So, um, so, so really where we need government to play a role is ensuring that the resources are there when people do put up their hand and say, hey, I need help. Okay, my, hey, uh, Chris, we got 30 seconds here. Uh, you touched on something uh, that we've been following on the show, and that is the shortage of help the waiting periods for help like if a construction worker comes to your program and says look i need help i i've got an addiction i've got a mental illness do they go on a waiting list or do they get help right away well it's it's a challenge and um you know the, 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 if you go into the system there's no point in saying yeah i'm struggling and then it's it's three six nine months to get in front yeah. of a counselor right. so we're trying to do everything we can to get them resources but ultimately as you see in so many different examples, our healthcare system seems to be incapable with dealing with some very basic care for uh, for individuals, whether it's construction-related okay. in this case or not. Chris Gardner, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Great, thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right. Let's talk about downtown crime now in Vancouver. People who live and work in the city core not feeling safe with the surge in violent crime that we're witnessing right now. Check out some of these numbers here now. Brand new opinion poll done by the Leger polling company shows a large majority of Metro Vancouver residents feel the downtown core has declined in public safety over the last year. A very, very much smaller percentage feel that it has gotten safer. I've got Paul Dragon standing by to discuss from Reckless Bikes, his store on Davies Street. Have a listen to this here first. This is Steve Mossop from the Leger Polling Company here speaking to Global News. Probably the biggest outcome of the survey is that residents, about half of them are saying, I'm just not going to go downtown. I'm going to go downtown way less often than I have before. I'm not going to go to that concert. I'm not going to go to that football game. I'm not going to go out for dinner. Okay, that's, uh, let's d- discuss the issue now with my guest, Paul Dragon. Paul is the owner of Reckless Bikes in Vancouver. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Paul, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks very much, Mike. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for doing it. Your store's uh, your store's on Davie Street, right? Is that where you are? That's right, in, in Yaletown, right on the seawall. Yeah, right. how long have you been down there? 23 years now, Mike. Wow, wow, good for you. That's awesome. Let's talk about the situation in the neighborhood now. What are you seeing down there, Paul? Is it getting worse, in your opinion? Well, we we just see an increase of, of um, people without homes or uh, people under the influence of drugs on the street in general. For years and years and years, Yaletown was kind of a bit of an isolated bubble. Um, anecdotally, we would say since the pandemic, we've seen an increase in street people, and we've seen an increase in attempted shoplifting, and just a general deterioration of the neighborhood. How does that compare to, let's go back to, let's go back over 20 years to when you first opened the store. What was it like then? How, how was it different? Well, um, Marina Side Crescent was a dirt road at that point. So <laughs> not uh-huh. a lot of people, not a lot of people knew that we were here. Look, that when we opened, Urban Fair had just opened and that was a catalyst for the whole neighborhood. And there was yeah. a, just a huge, um, of positive support for the neighborhood. It was a, the new downtown people were moving in. There was a school. There were young people. There were old people. There were middle-class people. There were rich people. It was just a real nice mixture in the neighborhood, and people were very, very happy to live here, and they were very proud of their neighborhood. Did you have any trouble at your store? Like, would people come into the store, try to steal stuff, broken windows, well, we've like always that? Bike shops are a bit of a mecca for uh, all things. So, yeah, that's always been an issue. But um, we would say that specifically since the pandemic, we've had more issues than we would have had prior. 
Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that. Like, what kind of issues are you seeing there? Well, we, we A, we have an open-door policy, so um, our doors are open. In fact, they're wide open because getting a bike in and out of a store needs to be convenient. Um, we've just moved to do things like, like, believe it or not, we lock our locks to the wall. So a common theft item is a U-lock or a D-lock. And people, a guy's boat will steal that and then they'll attempt to return it to one of our different stores and attempt to get their 80 or or $100 back. Um, we have uh, people under the influence of something who uh, use our pumps because we provide free air to anybody. You just have to come and use it. But we always have to keep an eye on them when they're there. So A, they don't steal our pump. And B, they just don't try to steal something else. So we just need to be more attentive. Um, we've increased uh, security inside the store. We've increased security outside the store with additional bars and gates. Uh, and it's just a general feeling that it's not as good as it used to be. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're not alone, man. I, I've talked to a lot of business owners, and particularly in that neighborhood, on exact feeling exactly the same way and taking very similar measures. Talking to Paul Dragon, Paul is the owner of Reckless Bikes Bike Store on Davy Street. Tell me about the. Um, you've got a sticker. I watched you on Global News the other night, Paul, and you've got a no trespassing sticker on your door. Tell me about that. Yeah, that's correct. So, um, believe it or not. <laughs> If somebody is physically camped out on your property and the VPD would like them to move along, they can claim that, no, they actually have permission to camp there and it's okay with the owner of the property, So, um, <laughs> which obviously it isn't. So we, uh, we have a couple of stores, one here in Yaletown, one near Granville Island, and then we have a, a warehouse um, close to the downtown core as well. And so I've... I've, I've got those decals or stickers for all three locations. So if we need to call the VPD, they could actually look at that. And, and the stickers registered with their, with their office or with their department says, no, actually, you're not allowed to camp here and we'd like you to move along. It, it just sounds inconceivable to me that that's what we'd have to do, but that's what we're <laughs> doing. Okay, so this is to meet this technical requirement just to show that... No, you don't have permission to camp in front of my store. That's right. Yeah, I yeah. haven't added one. I haven't added one to our home yet. We have a townhouse um, with a small front terrace and three steps up to get to the front door. And we've had numerous people over the years either using it as a urinal or stealing the flower from the front door and um, the flower pot. If I can get one more uh, decal, I'll add it to there. The Strata Society has now agreed that we're going to put a gate in on the front of each of our steps just to delineate the, the public from the private property. So it just seems like every year, Mike, we have to do a little bit of something else. And, where, and is that downtown as well? I'm where sorry, you, I couldn't hear that. Is that also downtown, like where, you, where you, you're describing? Downtown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're okay. just not far from Beach Avenue. Okay. All right. Uh, I thought it was interesting you were describing you have an open-door policy there at your store, which I think, you know, in past years that would have been considered normal business procedure. Of course your door is open, but I've seen some stores now have got to go to uh, like a ringer. you got to ring a front doorbell to get in. There was a, a, a jewelry store in downtown Victoria at a 
brazen daylight robbery there about a week ago, and the same deal. They had an open door. If, if you're a customer, just walk on in. Yeah. And, of so, course, that's the way you want to run your business. Is it possible that you might have to change that? Well, we're somewhat fortunate, Mike, in the sense that bike stores are predominantly staffed by males, and there's always two or three of us around. And we have some tools if we needed. Uh, if a guy comes in with a hammer, we have a bigger hammer. If he comes in with a baseball bat, we have a bigger baseball bat. Um, if he comes in with bear spray, we've got some bear spray too. So we feel we're a little more immune to that because of just the, 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 the makeup of our employees in the store. Um, if I had a store with a single young lady running it or two young ladies running it, I don't think I'd have an open door policy. Yeah. Now, when you're talking about bear spray and baseball bats, are you saying you, you physically have those items in your store to defend, defend your store and your staff? We've never had to use them. Okay. But we have them, right? Because yeah. we just yeah. don't. And, you know, we don't want to get close to anybody anymore. 20 years ago, if a guy was stealing my lock, I might come up to him face to face and say, hey, take that lock out of your backpack or from underneath your shirt. We don't want to get close to anybody anymore. We, we well, just no. need the, the needle or the or the the mental health issue that causes the guy to react. So, well, yeah, you, you don't know if the guy's got a knife on him. Nope. you don't know. You don't know what's going to yeah. happen. What about for you and your you and your family? Like in that neighborhood, do you feel safe walking around? Like you go out for dinner downtown? Well, yes. You know, about two years ago, um, one of the VPD officers who I know said, "Paul, they're reviewing the police budget." And uh, would you mind sending just a short paragraph to mayor and council about the, you know, the possibility they wanted to reduce it? And I said, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And my thoughts down on paper, I realized that, that myself personally, we've made four or five different adjustments since we've lived downtown 10 years ago. And it's just small things, but incrementally it sort of adds up. So, Number one, my wife nor I want to walk down Granville Street to get downtown at any time of the day. It doesn't matter. 10 o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock at night, 2 in the afternoon, 2 at night. Uh, if I am walking downtown and I see maybe an encampment or uh, someone talking to himself, I just cross the street now. I, don't, I just don't need to be on the same side of the street. And it's small things like that that we changed, changed our flower pot. To the, to the bush, right? It, yeah. it, it's just small things like that. And so as I started to think about it, I go, you know, it has changed. It is different. And um, when I walk around, one thing I notice, because we've always been a target for break-ins, but we have bars and gates and alarms. What I notice are the number of storefronts that normally wouldn't have been a target for a break-in. And you can tell by the piece of plywood in the door, the, the nail salon, the small sushi restaurant, the tiny grocery store, 10, 15 years ago, those never would have been broken into. And now yeah. you see it regularly. Yeah, boy, that's a sad commentary right there. What, what do you think, last question for you, Paul, what do you think needs to be done? I mean, you've seen these changes in the neighborhood over the last 20 plus years. What do you think needs to be done or could be done to make it better? Well, obviously, there's a whole suite of mental health um, services that need to be um, encouraged and perhaps ramped up. 
But I would say the place to start at the beginning is like what New York City did in the 70s. They got rid of the graffiti and they fixed the broken windows and they gave their neighborhood back a little more sense of pride. Um, I think that's a good first step. And, you know, everyone can participate in that. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, let's talk about the guy who was feeding the bears in his backyard. And this is going to cost him a pretty penny here now with the fine that's been handed down by the B.C. Provincial Court. This wasn't exactly the toughest case to crack, not exactly the crime of the century here. A court heard that social media videos of the bears being fed at the guy's house were uploaded on the Internet. So that's how the case started. Got Sergeant Simone Gravel standing by to discuss here. First, let's have a listen to this report from Global News. A man from West Vancouver has been handed a $5,000 fine for feeding black bears in his backyard. Vitaly Shevchenko recently pleaded guilty to feeding dangerous wildlife, a violation under the B.C. Wildlife Act. The B.C. Conservation Service began its investigation after videos of the bears began being fed appeared on social media in 2018. Most of the penalty will go to a conservation group. Okay, $5,000 is the fine for feeding black bears in the guy's backyard. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Sergeant Simone Gravel, spokesperson, BC Conservation Officer Service. Simone, thanks for coming on today. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me. You bet. Thanks a lot for doing it. Why? This is kind of an obvious question, but why is this a dumb thing to do, to be feeding feeding black <laughs> bears in your backyard? That's a very good question. I think a lot of people are attracted by wildlife, and they feel like... Uh, going to be a unique experience to feed wildlife dangerous wildlife in this case and it's a very selfish thing to do and it's obviously um, misunderstanding of the mechanic in place here when you feed dangerous wildlife there's two things that are very important to understand about about bears specifically it's they are food driven and they have a very good memory so if, if you feed a bear they'll associate human to a food source and quickly it becomes a very, very dangerous situation for humans and for the bears uh, if they do make this association between human and food. So in any case, it's a good idea to feed, uh, to feed black bears. So we've been yelling that loud and clear for years and years, and obviously yeah. it's, it's legal in B.C., and uh, we're happy that uh, people are aware now there's consequences as well, and uh, this $5,000 penalty should uh, be very compelling for people that think that uh, it's a good thing to do, and hopefully it will um, provide a lot of awareness and making sure that people understand that um, it's a very dangerous thing to do. It compromises both the safety, like I said, of people, but the bear itself as well. Yeah, yeah, it's it's dangerous for humans not only to have a, a wild animal, dangerous animal like a bear, become accustomed to humans and then hanging around the neighborhood, 
thinking he's going to get another free meal. But it's also, exactly. is it also not dangerous, is it dangerous also for the bear? Because I, there's there, there's an old saying that if a fed bear is a dead bear, that if the bear becomes a problem, it might have to be destroyed. It's correct. You know, like there's not uh, a lot of options for us to change the bear behavior when they do this, make this association between human and the food, food source. So in some cases, perhaps we can close an area, like if that happens in a park, in a remote location, but in the residential area, like in West Vancouver or North Vancouver, uh, it is, the, the options to uh, mitigate a situation like this is very limited. And unfortunately, it can put some officers uh, in the situation where the only way really to protect others, it will be to remove the bear. And that's a very, very tragic outcome. And often this all starts with, you know, a selfish decision to maybe have this unique moment with the bear and feed a bear. So, in any, so it's never a good idea, and it's very important for people to understand that one situation can compromise the safety of all and the bear itself. Yeah, it was interesting in this particular case, too. The court heard that this investigation began after social media videos were uploaded of these bears being fed at this home. Is that... Mm-hmm. Like in your in your experience as a conservation officer, is that happening more often that some of this stuff ends up being posted on there's videos po- video evidence posted on social media? <laughs> yeah, we see that more and more for sure. And I think British Columbia Colombians really love wildlife. And if you encounter wildlife, you're going to want to take a picture and share this picture. If you are committing an offense, and share those pictures as well. So that's not like you mentioned in the introduction, probably not the smartest things to do, but that's something that we will follow up with and uh, we'll investigate and sometimes it give us some good evidence to have some uh, some good conviction. Uh, we see that more and more for sure. Okay, speaking to, uh, speaking to Sergeant Simone Gravel, BC Conservation Officer Service, I think it's a good opportunity to just talk a little bit about part of the campaign that you guys are behind on, just making the public aware of food storage. First of all, certainly do not feed these these animals. That's obviously illegal, as this guy found out, to the tune of $5,000. But what about what about tr- uh, safe storage of food and garbage? Well, I'm glad you're bringing that up because feeding directly wildlife is a big issue and it should never be done. But attracting dangerous wildlife or feeding wildlife, uh, dangerous wildlife in this case, uh, non-directly, like non-intentionally, by leaving a tractant or not securing your garbage. If you live in a bear country, it's also a very big issue. And as you mentioned, we've been also <laughs> yelling that loud and clear for years and years. If you live in a, back, in, in, in a place where there's black bears or coyotes or other dangerous wildlife, you should secure your garbage, your bird feed, or every attractant around your house should be not accessible by black bears and because of this for the same reason if you intend non-intentionally feed uh, a bear it also compromises safety and the safety of others by making this bear associating our neighborhoods or your backyard to a food source and as i said they are they have a strong memory they will come back and they'll become more and more persistent to try to access that food source and and that and some and often it uh, it leads to a situation that is not manageable in any other way to remove this this bear in some tragic case. So we the management of black bears in our NBC is really the responsibility of everyone, and we're asking for everyone to take to be part of the solution and secure their attractant at all time.
I wonder if some people tend to think that maybe black bears are are not that dangerous. They're not as mm-hmm. threatening as a as a grizzly bear. Like I've often heard that if you are attacked by a black bear, your best chance is to fight back. But if you're attacked by a grizzly bear, you've got no chance, and you should play dead. Is that mm-hmm. is that true? <laughs> That's interesting. There's uh, a lot of information here, but. Uh... I think the important thing to say is like black bears, like grizzly bears, could potentially be pretty aggressive or dangerous to humans. Sometimes not necessarily to attack you, to feed on people or anything like this, but you can imagine that a 300-pound black bear, if he wants a food source, if he wants to access food, he can be very, very persistent, and it can cause human injuries uh, in the process of it. So having black bears in your backyard even if they're cute, and I do understand, we, we all love black bears. We have a, a very high tolerance for black bears in our culture for many reasons. But we have to respect them. They are wild animals, and they deserve us to respect this, this uh, aspect of... of um, I'm, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I mean, we need to respect that they are wild animals and not right. contributing to the domestication of black bear. And that's a very important message. So the best respect we can give them is to give them some space and not attracting them in our backyard and just right. keep them wild. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.